The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very good morning everybody. A warm welcome to Squawk Box. We are live in Bavaria with Steve for the G7 and in Madrid with Hadley for the NATO Summit. And Karen and I are in the London studio. Here are your headlines. G7 leaders now facing the actual feasibility of a price cap on Russian oil, whilst the French President Emmanuel Macron warns President Biden he's getting pushback from major crude producers on calls to open the taps. NATO boosts the number of troops it has on high alert as Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg outlines a new strategy in the face of the war in Ukraine. This constitutes the biggest overhaul of collective defence and deterrence since the Cold War. A Swiss court finds Credit Suisse guilty in a high-profile money laundering case as CEO Thomas Gottstein prepares to face questions at the troubled lenders investor deep dive later today. ECB board member Isabel Schnabel warns fragilities are beginning to appear as global central bank governors gather in Sintra. We'll bring you more coverage ahead on Squawk Box. And Robinhood gets a rough ride in extended trade as crypto exchange FTX denies a report it's looking to buy the trading app, while prominent crypto hedge fund Three Arrows Capital defaults says the sector faces ongoing turmoil. So there's an awful lot going on, isn't there, on the uh, international political scene and also on markets where we saw resistance to the upside again yesterday to this rebound. So we'll talk about markets presently, but let's focus on the G7 event first. G7 officials are working through the details on how a proposed price cap on Russian oil would actually work and if it could win approval from various states involved. Leaders are looking at the, quote, feasibility of such a complex and technical plan, according to a draft text seen by the Financial Times. That's after Monday's proposal to implement a ceiling on the price of Russian crude was met with caution by some European leaders. The French President Emmanuel Macron is reportedly taking the concept further, insisting on worldwide oil price controls instead of a measure targeted only at Russia. Well, speaking on the sidelines of the G7 summit, Macron told US President Joe Biden that he had faced pushback on calls for increased production from the Saudis and from the UAE. One, I'm at the maximum, maximum, what he claims, and this is my complete commitment. Second, told me, according to us, the Saudis can increase a little bit, but 150 or a little bit more, and they, they don't have huge capacities at this stage, before six months' time. Well, an extraordinary sort of off-mic moment, really, and difficult to tell whether Macron 
expected his words to be picked up or whether this was done very deliberately but but Steve this you know really gets to the heart of the conversation we were having with you from Elmau yesterday where you were pointing out the complexities of actually getting a price cap that worked I know there's been some discussion as to whether the insurance market would effectively be the tool used to try and enforce some kind of price controls but are you getting any more light on how such a process would actually work? No. <laughs> um, do you know, when I spoke to you yesterday, uh, you and Karen, about this, and I raised, I think it was about five or six very big questions about it, I thought that I was raising questions on something that had a bit of legs to it, that something, a concept, had gone beyond the prototype, that beyond the drawing of the new car, the new shiny idea, and actually they'd actually worked out what's under the bonnet or, or how you actually operate this thing. The more I hear, the more I listen to what other people have been doing and, and the key conversations I've been having as well, um, there is no feasibility at the moment. There is no mechanism at the moment. It is a concept. In corporate world, you have like CEOs who say, well, I'll tell you what, if we were to bid for this company, why don't we just say, put, get it out into the market? We'll fly a kite, i.e. we'll put the idea out there, we'll float the idea. And I think that's what's been done. I don't think there's anything else behind it. And I would love someone to tell me otherwise, because it's a very interesting idea. And it's a very interesting idea at a moment of energy crisis around the world. I mean, there is one glaring fact, which one can allude to, that if it was such a great feasible idea, why wouldn't anyone have done it previously? Why wouldn't there be a worldwide consumption cartel that everyone's working together uh, to limit the price of oil and limit the price specifically in this case of Russian oil? So I spoke to the one man who I hoped would actually be able to give clarity to me on this well. And he was there in the family photo yesterday. He's at the top table with Modi and Biden and Scholz and what have you. And that's Dr. Fatih Birol, and as a man that we've spoken to as a channel, and I've spoken to a lot specifically over the years, and he's the executive director of the IEA. Now, the IEA, of course, as our viewers do know, is the functioning energy body of the OECD. So it represents all the energy thinking that's going on from the consuming Western nations as well. So I thought if anyone was being drafted in to work out the mechanism to understand how this is going to be work, it would be Dr. Fatih Birol, a man who's stunningly experienced in this as well. And unfortunately, I came away from our interview knowing that he too is only going to be providing data towards this price cap, but does not have the tools in his capability at the IEA, which is an immense organisation, uh, to actually work out the mechanism. It's going to be someone else. It's going to be governments as well. So listening to our interview with Dr. Fatih Birol, where I specifically go after uh, the questioning about this price gap, uh, and then we'll just have a quick chat afterwards. So let's listen in to the interview with the executive director of the IEA. I think it is important to put the price cap in a context. Uh, what I believe is the we are going through uh, the first truly global energy crisis. We have never seen such a deep and complex energy crisis. The world has never been tested uh, now. And oil and natural gas are the two uh, nerve centers of this uh, global energy crisis. In terms of oil, we had to take some immediate uh, measures in order to lessen the pressure on the consumers around the world but especially developing uh, countries because they can afford less compared to advanced G7 uh, countries uh, here. What are those measures? I, there are, I think in my mind there are four blocks. There. Number one, I very much hope that the key 
producers, major oil exporters are going to bring some additional oil to the markets in the short term to give a, at least some type of comfort and give this message. This is number one. Number two, uh, we talk about the crude oil a lot, crude oil prices, but in fact, the refined product prices are increasing much higher uh, than the crude oil prices. Therefore, uh, given the extraordinary circumstances, I think the governments may think in order to ease some environmental regulations in the refineries and the IMO uh, rules, the suspension. This is the second one. Third, whatever we do on the supply side, we need to reduce the demand. So for the consumers, uh, governments, there, is, there, there should be some measures taken, and we have given some uh, suggestions in the last uh, few months, to reduce the oil consumption voluntarily or as a result of regulatory approaches, especially in the transportation sector. And the fourth, uh, the countries uh, want to take uh, uh, put set sanctions on uh, Russia, Russian oil. Price cap is uh, 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 one of them. It is under discussion uh, in the last uh, few days around the world. In my view, price cap should be designed in a way that uh, it uh, doesn't harm the economies uh, around the world. Is there any development beneath the surface that we haven't seen as journalists and as consumers and as oil traders in the world that says the mechanism has been worked out? Because as far as I can see, an announcement's been made about a price cap, but I see nothing about a mechanism and I see nothing about a buy-in globally. Yeah. I think this is what I understand. This is still uh, under discussion. What kind of mechanism? So there's no mechanism what just kind, yet. This is under discussion. What kind of mechanism and how we uh, can, the countries around the world, can uh, build the mechanism so that on one hand it reduces the Russian revenues, but on the other hand it doesn't lead to further tightness in the uh, markets. This is what uh, I think the countries are uh, working on and we are supporting with our uh, data sure. and uh, suggestions. Just going back to this oil price cap, if indeed there is an oil price cap, presumably that lessens the absolute price of oil for purchases in some jurisdictions. That's going to increase demand, which is going to keep prices at a higher level for longer, isn't it? Or correct me if I'm getting my supply and uh, demand wrong here. No, I think uh, you have a point there. It is the reason uh, I said how this uh, oil price cap is designed is extremely uh, critical. The devil is in details, uh, as they say, and uh, therefore I would be, uh, again, uh, very uh, careful to design a mechanism which will uh, have the buy-in of uh, several players, including those of uh, emerging countries. Do you think it's going to happen? I really hope so. <sighs> so there was other stuff in between. We were talking about oil price producers and other stuff as well on the green agenda, but... But, but I don't really know what to say, because, which is very rare for me, as you both know. We've had an announcement, and I'll just recap again what I've said to Fatih Burrow, what I said to you in the intro. We've had an announcement, that, that a soundbite from the G7, that says we're going to have a price cap on uh, Russian oil, and, it, and it's gone out to the world, this price cap, and it's on the headline and everything uh, from the G7. But there's nothing behind it at the moment. They haven't done their work. He said, and do you know what he said there? He said, he said we've been talking about this the last few days. So, so it's an idea. It's a concept. It's so far from reality. And then you add in those comments from Monsieur Macron, who, which were caught on camera or whatever it may be, deliberate or not, who knows. 
that actually it's really tight out there from the producers, which is the first point from Fatih Birol when he was talking about his first answer about well, additional supply from the oil market, that's key as well. And then you've got a situation where you've had the inverse effect of what the G7 leaders wanted, i.e. a lessening of the oil price on the back of this meeting, because we've got this one, guys. The West has got this one. We're going to get the price down. We're going to have a less of a cost of living crisis. So if we walk away from the G7 meeting at this moment, the oil price has gone up on the back of deliberations. That, that is the fact. Whatever they, they want to paint it over there in this amazing castle behind me, the fact is they've got a mechanism that doesn't exist, on a concept that is just shiny and brand new. Uh, and now, because of what Monsieur Macron said, the oil price has gone up. That's not the optics they wanted, I believe. Uh, Steve, it's rare for you to be baffled and at a loss for words in a way. So, in fact, it sort of demonstrates just how chaotic the situation is as we talk about some sort of a price cap. But now in context, as you mentioned, with Macron and spelling out the dynamics about really being tapped out when it comes to supply at this stage, is the only conclusion, effectively, that we are really looking at some form of a, a reaction for consumers and businesses, which we've seen glimpses of in Germany and also in France in recent weeks and days, that we're talking about cutbacks on consumption. Yeah, yeah, Karen, you're absolutely right. Look, look, look there are solutions. I, I guess I'm, I'm being baffled for dramatic effect as well because I, I, it, it is quite extraordinary of what has happened here or not happened, as the case may be, where the, the whole conference has been dominated by one issue. Of course, it's Ukraine. But I'm saying nothing else. And I've never gone to a meeting of G meetings. And I've been to... I don't know, well over a dozen over the years where there's been a lot of other stuff I can say, yeah, but apart from that, this is going on inside of it. I'm seeing nothing virtually, apart from a, a rehashed global infrastructure plan, which pretty much echoes what we've heard from various jurisdictions a few times. But let me go back to P Fatty Birrell's first answer. He said additional supply to the market was one of the first points. And there is additional supply that's available from the market. Now, the, the, the line that MBZ and uh, Matsuri are giving to... Um, Macron from the Middle East. It, it's, it's a little bit self-serving as well. It's like, we're doing all we can. We're doing all we can. We've got nothing much else left. To, well, I'm sure that Saudi and the UAE have got some swing production. People talk about a couple of million barrels from Saudi and a bit of spare from UAE as well. And I'm, so I'm sure OPEC has got some as well. But, but maybe uh, this is from Macron to Biden saying, well, maybe we need to talk about sanctions on Iran a bit more. Let's get this, some of those Iranian exports back on. The Venezuelans we know have got some uh, vast amounts of reserves. The biggest reserves in the world, actually but it's just such a dilapidated and decrepit and corrupt system in Venezuela. Um, so it just needs vast amount of spending on it. But there is oil production there potentially. And, uh, and again, the second point about consumption, and we all know from supply and demand that actually consumption will go down at a higher price. It has done in every other crisis since. There are loads of ways uh, that energy can be saved. I mean, gosh, I remember <laughs> Jeff in, uh, I think it was 2009, speaking to uh, experts in the industry, industry at, uh, at the, the COP15, telling him how we can save more and that's actually a much better way for uh, us to consume energy as well so there are mechanisms that can be used and there are uh, solutions to this in many ways but the fact of the matter is the oil market is tight the refined product market is even tighter than the headline crude price it is showing as well but the g7 has not as far as i can see in my honest opinion i'm not trying to have a look at for a constituency i'm not trying to push a point in my honest opinion they've come up with an idea with very little behind it and no international buy-in beyond the G7 as well. And that's quite worrying if that's how decision-making is being made, by soundbite, and then we'll work it out later on. That's just my humble opinion. Back to you both. Steve, we appreciate the work on the ground there. Thank you very much for the interpretation too. Well, let's bring in the geopolitics here. As NATO says, it will boost the size of its rapid reaction forces to 300,000 troops. 
as well as introduce other specific measures to better respond to threats. The alliance's Secretary-General Jens Stoltenberg called it, quote, the biggest overhaul in collective defence since the Cold War. The move comes as NATO countries meet in Madrid to discuss further support for Ukraine. Let's get out to Hadley for more from Madrid. Hadley, I know you probably want to weigh in on the Macron comments first up as well. <laughs> Absolutely, Karen. We've been doing it all morning, I have to say. Um, seemingly the blind leading the blind there, just as Steve was saying, and one wonders how they're actually going to be able to make uh, a something out of what could potentially be nothing there. I had a flurry of WhatsApp conversations with oil ministers across the GCC overnight. I'm getting them to weigh in, and, and they seemingly as baffled as I was. But moving on to what's happening here in Madrid, we are just one day away from the start of this NATO summit. They have announced a new concept, a new strategy for NATO for the first time in over a decade, essentially calling for beefing up the troop readiness on the eastern flank. Listen in to what the Secretary General had to say yesterday. At the summit, we will strengthen our forward defenses. We will enhance our battle groups in the eastern part of the alliance up to brigade levels. We will transform the NATO response force and increase the number of our high readiness forces to well over 300,000. We will also boost our ability to reinforce in crisis and conflict, including with more pre-positioned equipment and stockpiles of military supplies, more forward deployed capabilities like air defense, strengthened command and control, and upgraded defense plans with forces pre-assigned to defend specific allies. And just to give you guys a sense of how big of an increase we are talking about, the Rapid Response Force today sits at just 40,000 troops. Now, of course, there are bigger questions about where those troops are going to come from, who's going to be funding it. One of the things that Jen Stoltenberg made very clear yesterday was his um, happiness, frankly, at the fact that more countries have increased their spending for NATO up to that 2% threshold than we've seen since 2014. He was happy, frankly, with, uh, with that increase in funding. But of course, store so much more needs to be done. Now, some of the big outstanding questions are going to be whether or not we're going to make any progress over the next couple of days on Sweden and Finland joining NATO. There's a lot more pushback, I think, than he anticipated um, from Turkey there. You'll remember just a month ago when I sat down with the secretary general at NATO, he thought that they'd be able to wrap up those conversations prior to the Madrid summit. It doesn't seem that they've been able to make too much progress there. And in conversations yesterday with reporters, he essentially said he was making no promises on coming to some kind of conclusion on that question over the next couple of days. Another thing I do want to mention, China. For the very first time in the NATO strategy, they've listed China as an area of concern. So a serious change of language there. Now, I've been speaking uh, with the NATO Secretary General for years now about the response that NATO was going to need uh, to come up with when it comes to China and its impact on NATO members. One of the questions I'll be asking him later today is about that as well. When I sit down with him in an exclusive interview, guys, just hours from now, we're going to be talking about not only NATO readiness and no doubt about the energy situation and the concept of this Russian price cap, but also about how NATO allies can continue um, on their trajectory toward the energy transition, toward keeping their climate change goals at a time of crisis between Russia and Ukraine. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. 
Ukraine. Credit Suisse is having a deep dive today. Uh, Credit Suisse, a bank that uh, you'll all be familiar with, has just had a tale of woe over the last uh, two years as uh, we've had scandal after scandal. And the latest uh, breaking just Monday as a Swiss court decided that the bank should be fined $2 million for its involvement in a uh, Bulgarian money laundering story. Um, the deep dive is part of management's attempt to try and get ahead of the news and to try and perhaps restore some confidence uh, with investors who have basically just watched the share price fall uh, over recent years. And as you can see from that chart, we're off over 35%. So let me just give you a few snaps from the deep dive event. The company says uh, it is um, trying effectively to uh, shift the culture. We are making fundamental changes to the compliance risk culture. Our approach to sanctions demonstrates the effectiveness of our controls to manage evolving market developments. Uh, we are strengthening the first line of defence and compliance oversight in client onboarding and lifecycle management, planning to build out cloud-native wealth as a service offering with partners and plans to standardise international booking platforms and financing solutions. The uh, group says it will increase the risk budget uh, uh, of, uh, up to at least 15% or more for 2022 as against the 2020 uh, um, uh, costs that were associated with managing risk. Uh, they are also obviously focusing on uh, other areas of business opportunity and we can spend a bit more time on technology and operations and compliance and risk management obviously as we go through the morning and we hear more from the bank. Just uh, two points on this. One, a little bit of backpatting, it seems internally as to how they responded to the sanctions that uh, their risk management process now flagged up uh, clearly what looks like a number of individ individuals and um, they've managed to sort of call out the response that they've had here. So that's interesting. The other point too is around building out cloud native wealth as a service. Uh, I think we know what that means. You put more data in the cloud, you can be more interactive with partners, but also reduces the complexity of current IT systems and platforms, which makes it a little bit easier to consolidate on the track, doesn't it? I mean, that's one of the cleanup efforts that you have to do at a bank, move a lot of services to the cloud so that you have interoperability between platforms. And of course, there's still that lurking issue as to whether there's ever any consolidation in Switzerland between a UBS and a Credit Suisse. Yeah, Karen, isn't it amazing that um, increased technology is meant to make things easier, simpler, more streamlined, less complex? But Unfortunately, I think my experience, and I don't know about your experience, but my experience has largely been that more technology generally leads to greater complexity because uh, the problem that the banks have, that a lot of organisations have, is they don't come at this with a clean slate. Mm. So it's not like you've just started the business and you create all systems to be interoperable based on a cloud platform. What you end up doing is getting IT people to write little bits of code that will link together systems that are, in many cases, legacy operations that are not as modern, but they are essential for the running of other parts of the bank. And then you end up basically just trying to muddle through. And I fear and I suspect that a lot of companies go down that route. And it'll be interesting to see how Credit Suisse's turns out. But anybody yeah. that tries to promise you that technology will make your life more simple, 
quite frankly, I think we all know that that's a lie. I'm not sure I completely agree. I don't know if you recall a story from many years ago where Deutsche Bank uh, effectively didn't know that they were working on the the same client or or putting the same sort of bids in and they were competing against each other, the only two people in the room competing against each other. A very old story, but because the systems were not up to scratch effectively. So you're agreeing with me? Well, no, I've had conversations since then with Deutsche, and this was a legacy issue because don't forget, you think about banks, they bought so many different businesses and none of the platforms actually ever spoke to each other because they're all different technology. I know Deutsche Bank is working with Google. They're really very much brought in the experts to try and change the platforms and move a lot of the services to the cloud so you do have the ability to to talk to different parts of the business. That does tell you if they're bringing the experts, it gives you a sense of what other banks need to do to upgrade their services because, I mean, you know, bringing in a Google player as a major partner to ensure you've got the best IT systems and you're creating new business services on the back of that type of technology, it does tell you about the acceleration taking place in the bank. And we're no longer just talking about getting rid of you know, a series of different platforms and having one platform. We're talking about creating new business models around the technology as well. So Credit Suisse clearly has some work to do. So, so what I'm hearing is more technology more cost, more external providers being brought in. Every time you add complexity, there's another company out there rubbing their hands saying, fantastic, this is an opportunity for me. I know some very wealthy IT consultants who have retired early. They only work three days a week. And they do that off the back of the fact that the banks increasingly have to meet higher regulation targets Mm. on all sorts of areas of their business, which means that these IT professionals get paid an awful lot of money to go in and stitch together bits of code. I'm not disagreeing with the consultant fees, but if you think about the work that had to be done, these banks needed to upgrade their IT anyway for various different reasons, not just greater efficiency, but to meet compliance, (laughs) meet greater security risks. But when we used to speak about this back in the day, it was going to cost billions. It was such an expensive exercise. Cloud has very much changed that and brought down the cost of executing. So you are seeing that acceleration because the banks can actually pay for it now. Has, will it, I mean, look, will it actually lead to more profitability for the banks? Because this is the problem. You know, we've, we've had this conversation mm. around the telecom sector. For the last 10 years, the telecom industry has been trying to find a new business model to take it away from the more utilitarian profit that it's been making. They've turned into energy companies effectively. The problem with the banks is they've now got fintech rivals that are chipping away at the most profitable parts of their business. And how do they try and compete? Well, they have to respond by improving the experience through technology. But do they actually make any more profit from it? Does the customer spend any more money? I don't think they do. I think the banks just end up spending more money on IT. Well, we've seen that tale of woe, haven't we, around profitability for the banks, and you could be right, but effectively market share protection is a legitimate strategy as well. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.